Amen. Well, many years ago when I was still a corporate monkey, I had an office neighbor, and we were very friendly. We would talk back and forth. You know, they weren't real walls. They were those fake walls, so you could hear everything that happened in the office next door. And she asked me one day, are you always like this? Uh, like what? And she said, you know, happy. Well, first of all, you live next to me. You know every day I'm not happy, but thank you. But I also realized, being very new to the faith at that point, that was a moment. That was my chance. That was my opportunity to give a reason for why she thought I was so happy all the time, no matter what was going on. And I would like to say that uh, I gave a great gospel presentation and that she immediately repented and believed, but I blew it. I, I choked on my words. I don't remember what I said, but I certainly did not do an adequate job of giving a reason for the hope that was in me. And it bothered me. I don't recall what I said, but I know it was terrible. Yet I knew the Bible clearly called me to be ready to give an answer at all times. How do we do that? I'm glad you asked. So rounding out the last week of our three-week mini-series on defending the faith, we have been looking at defending the faith by expositing three different scripture passages and looking at three key people of the Christian faith. Jesus, of course. Last week we looked at the Apostle Paul. And this week we look at the Apostle Peter we have hopefully seen that each one of them defends the faith in a contextualized and compassionate and compelling way. Last week, we looked at the Apostle Paul, where he showed us from Romans 1 that we defend the faith with a rational context, with compassion on those who reject God. But it also involves being personally compelled to speak up when the time arises. This week, we bring this little series to a close by looking at the Apostle Peter, good old, impetuous, spontaneous, foot-in-the-mouth Peter, and led read for us uh, our passage in verses 13 through 17. But to give us some context, I'm going to try, to try to stick to verse 15 as much as I can. I am not saying that I'm not going to jump out to other verses, caveat right now, I probably will. You know, the old Puritans used to just stay in one verse for hours and hours and hours, and there's a good reason to do that still. But in 1 Peter, we get the context of who Peter's writing to. Look at just the first chapter of 1 Peter. Peter, he identifies himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He said, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is his introduction. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. He's writing to specifically Christians, the elect ones, the elect exiles who have been scattered by persecution through all over the, the world, especially probably in, in Asia Minor. What's more important, he tells them he's writing this letter for their sanctification, for their growth. He says, everything in this letter is for your growth in Christ. They have been made disciples as God called them to himself. Now he's growing them to become more mature. Even being persecuted? Yes. Even 
being persecuted. And back in our passage in chapter 3, look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Many of us are experiencing pushback or static or verbal abuse or jokes, maybe for holding the biblical line on current issues in today like abortion or homosexuality. Here's the immediate context that Christians are experiencing resistance to their faith. Happened then, it's happening today. Anyone else experiencing resistance for your faith? And Peter tells them when they experience suffering and resistance, he says, have no fear. He says, nor let them trouble you. And there's a very, very even, even closer context that he says that that happens. Look at verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We've got a big old imperative verb in the Greek here, a godzo, which means set the Lord apart. It means have it firmly established in your mind already. We are commanded to do this. And that's the what. Set the Lord apart. Make sure you understand. Make sure you regard him as holy in all things. And where are we to do that? In the heart. We're supposed to do that in the hearts of every single one of, one of us as believers. So for Peter... We can, note, we can note the immediate context that's the heart of the Christian that's experiencing resistance for their faith. But note what he is saying. Honoring Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts is, is a precondition of defending the faith. This is a precondition to the defense of the faith. We have to have it settled in our hearts already before we get into that situation that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord of our lives. We like to focus a lot on the fact that Jesus is Savior, and yes and amen, but we also have to focus on the fact that He is Lord, that we submit to Him in all things, that He has the right and the authority to do so. We have to have that settled. Peter says that from that context then, we should live our lives differently. It should stick out. Therefore, people should be asking questions about why we live the way we do. Peter says that we should always be ready then to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason that we hope that is in us. And he says this could be anyone. Peter says we should be ready to give a defense to anyone who should ask us. We are to defend the faith and, and we are to proclaim the gospel without bias, without prejudice. This is right along with the Great Commission, of course, that Jesus has called us to make disciples of all nations, keeping with the, the big storyline of the Bible, the redemptive global message of God. It was never meant to be exclusively for Israel. It was always meant to be for the whole world, for every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne in Revelation, giving glory to Jesus. Now put these contextual elements together. Christians under persecution for their faith being asked what? Why? Why are you still clinging to that faith in the midst of your persecution? That's the context. One commentator writes, people will be wondering how we patiently endure the unjust decisions and treatment of those in authority over us. And when they ask, we can explain the reason for the hope that is in us. 
Another commentator, Dr. Schreiner, says, setting apart Christ as Lord in the heart is not merely a private reality, but it will be evident to all when believers suffer. That's when the rubber meets the road, isn't it? When we actually have to suffer for our faith, when we actually get resistance for our faith, when things aren't actually going the way we want to, when people are giving us pushback, that's when our faith truly must stand. And we must truly be ready to give a defense. And we can think and think that, yeah, maybe people will ask us for the reason that we we're, we're, uh, have this hope is because we're so happy all the time or we're like Ned Flanders for you Simpsons fans, just everything's okily-dokily and everything's fine. But the context of this passage is that people will ask us for the reason, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ when? When we suffer for our faith. When we are in the midst of persecution for our faith. And so here's the point. Defending the faith involves being persecuted for the faith. Defending the faith involves being persecuted for the faith. Yay! Thanks for the encouraging Sunday message, Pastor Mike. (laughs) Happy July 4th to you, too. (laughs) No one likes this truth, right? The last few weeks, church, have taught us anything of the headlines that we have seen in the news. We have to be ready. We have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because being a Christian in 2022 America is certainly not getting easier. A friend of mine recently remarked how her 14-year-old son has lost friends in school because he stands against the madness of abortion. We've all felt it on social media, the the anti-Christian memes, the the hate speech, so to to speak, the raging against biblical values, the, the mockery and Great news, that's only going to get worse. What are we supposed to do? Get run over? Just take it? Nope. Peter tells us we have to be ready to defend the faith. We have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. But have have the context set in your mind first. It needs to be a a settled matter of, of conscience in your heart that you believe this that you are a Christian, that you are 100% committed to living a life and persevering as a Christian. No half measures, Peter says. Full commitment. Have it settled in your heart already. If you have doubts, if you have questions, dig into God's word and the wealth of resources that the church has for the last 2,000 years. Ask an elder, ask your shepherd, ask me, pray through it, get those doubts settled, but have it settled in your mind. Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm setting Christ apart as holy. I'm fully committed. And here's the natural application then that flows from that reality. Not only be a Christian and have decided it in your heart, but then, of course, be a legit Christian. Continue in the faith. Once that's settled, persecution will come. We need to normalize persecution. Sometimes we get so shocked that people are pushing back against the faith. It's supposed to happen. It will happen. The world has turned against the Bible. The world has turned against God's law. I joke around and say we're no longer the cool kids. I don't know if we ever were. But it's true. We need to normalize persecution. Understand you will get static for your faith. You will get pushback. You will get the comments. You will get the mocking and the pot shots. Keep in mind, too, that other people in other countries suffer far worse for their faith. 
America is still the easiest country in the world to be a Christian. And we should give thanks to God when we think about this nation and our independence and continue to ask Him to bless it and pray for our brothers and sisters in places like Iran and Afghanistan and North Korea and Sudan, and we could go on and on. The 4th of July weekend should remind us America is still the easiest place on earth to be a Christian, even when we do face resistance. Now, the context of Peter's instruction is the settled heart of a believer that is experiencing that pushback for their faith. It's kind of common sense, right? He says, you're going to have to give a defense. So in order to defend something, you kind of have to be attacked. You kind of have to be oppressed, right? He says, get ready. You will be attacked. You will be oppressed. It's coming. Defending the faith involves being persecuted for the faith. And as we've seen with Jesus and Paul, Peter models for us not only this contextualized defense, but a compassionate one as well. We see this right in the verse this morning. Look at 15. I'll remind us of our main text. But in your hearts, always honor Christ the Lord as holy, being prepared always to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The first way that Peter models this compassionate defense is in the fact that he will respond to anyone. Let's not blow by that. We actually need to respond. Sometimes it's far easier to be like, oh, there's my opening, and I'm going to let it pass. I'm not going to open my mouth. Maybe they'll switch the topic to something else. Maybe I just will keep my mouth shut. Peter isn't closed-hearted. He says we should be ready to respond to anyone. He's ready to answer anyone. It doesn't matter who. He wants them to know the truth of the gospel, and that is true compassion. We cannot be closed-hearted. We cannot be calloused. We cannot be too spiritually proud to pass over someone whom the Holy Spirit is prompting us to engage. To ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to engage someone in the truth of the gospel is sin. And ultimately, it shows a lack of compassion for the lost. Why would we not engage? Verse 14 gave us a clue. He says, even if you should suffer, you'll be blessed, but have no fear of them. This is kind of in the context of this, right? So many times we don't engage. Why? Because we're scared. We don't want to open our mouth. We don't want to to have that resistance. We wonder what they're going to think of us. We don't want to be different. We're afraid, and fear is the enemy of compassion. Fear is the enemy of obedience. Straight up, fear blocks compassion for the lost. Now, it is natural to be anxious when we are sharing these eternal truths, and we should be. These are colossal, worldview, eternal things. We shouldn't be communicating them in a flippant or light manner. And there's no bigger deal than the things that we are communicating. We shouldn't discuss them glibly or frivolously or in a passive-aggressive way on social media. There needs to be a level of sobriety in any apologetic defense of the faith. Recognize it for what it is, but don't be controlled by fear. Don't let fear close your mouth. The second, and most importantly, There are direct words from the Apostle Peter commanding us to have compassion in defending the faith. Look at the back half of verse 15. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope, yet do it with anger and irritation. Uh, Do it with pride and volume. Do it in a tone that is condescending 
and holier than thou. I sincerely hope your Bibles do not say that. It says, do so with gentleness and respect. Gentleness? Hold on, whoa, pump the brakes. Gentleness? I'm being attacked for my faith, and you want me to respond with gentleness. I'm just the mailman here, people. That's what it says. That's what it says. We are to respond with gentleness. Respect? You want me to respect them? What they're saying on social media? With their crazy, evil worldviews? You cannot be serious, Peter. Our word here for gentleness means the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. It means humility, courtesy, meekness. Remember in what context? Under persecution. Our word here for respect is actually a Greek word phobos, which means fear. Not fear of man, but more along the lines of fear of God. Respect and reverence and honoring. We are called to outdo one another in showing honor. So yes, we have to honor the other person even if their ideas are completely contradictory to ours. We are commanded to respect others. Again, in what context? Persecution for the faith. Don't you love sanctification? Like it's not only do those things, but do those things in the hardest possible environment. That's how we grow. The, what is the opposite again? I was, I was messing around in the beginning there, right? What is the opposite of gentleness and respect? To answer them with harsh words, disrespectful words, insulting words, prideful word, words. The world does not need one more arrogant, prideful, combative Christian. We really don't. We need faithful, committed Christians who aren't afraid to defend the faith, and who are speaking the truth in love with gentleness and respect. Here's the point. Defending the faith involves responding with gentleness and respect to our opponents. Now, I want to be clear. Responding with gentleness and respect does not mean that we go soft on the truth. The truth is going to be black and white. The truth of a situation is what the Bible says this situation is. What the Bible calls sin is what is truly sin. But we have to remember, we can't go personal with this. One of the four rules of biblical communication is to attack the problem, not the person. We're not going after the person in and of themselves. We're going after the false ideas. We're going after the worldview. We're attacking the problem, not the person. We speak truth clearly and firmly, but we treat the person with gentleness and respect. That's a small piece of land to stand on, but it's got to be the piece of land that we stand on. And there's a really, really important reason why we are to respond with gentleness and respect, because again, the goal is not just to win an argument, church. The goal is to win souls. Second Timothy talks about this in chapter 2, verses Uh, 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with, watch it, gentleness. God may perhaps, perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That last part is super important talking to a non-Christian, 
they, are, they don't have their mind renewed. We've talked about this for the last two weeks. They're under the power of the devil. They need their mind renewed and freed by the Holy Spirit. They're operating in sin. It's, it's a blind person, a spiritually blind person. We can't be angry at a spiritually blind person because they're spiritually blind. They need the Holy Spirit to open eyes. But look, look at what also Peter, uh, sorry, Timothy told us. Paul tells us. I'll get there eventually, right? Here's the reason why. You correct him with gentleness. Why? Because God might perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's what we're after. We're not after just winning the argument. Right? We are not to be quarrelsome but kind. We are to be able to teach knowing what is right, what is not right. We are patiently, called patiently to endure evil and correcting our opponents with gentleness. We're reminded again in this passage too that we don't save anybody. It's God that saves. God's the one that's got to open their eyes to the truth. We plant the seeds. We are the faithful ones, but the Holy Spirit is the one that waters and gives growth. So what are we supposed to do? Speak the truth in love and just be like Jesus Happy all the time. We're supposed to get run over all the time when people just crush our ideas and our worldview. We also have to take that back to Jesus. How did Jesus respond? Right in 1 Peter itself, he reminds us how Jesus responded in verse 23 of chapter 2. When he, meaning Jesus, was reviled, watch this, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. We get sucked into an argument and we make it personal. We are not entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father. We are making it all about us and how we can win this argument. When we are reviled, we are not called to revile in return. There's never a green light for sin. It's like they called me a name, so I get to call them a name back. It doesn't work like that. It right? doesn't work like that in, in interactions, in apologetics. It doesn't work like that in, in evangelism. It doesn't work like that in marriage. If your spouse says one thing, you can't go right back with something else, right? It doesn't ever work like that. We're never given a green light for sin. And our model's Jesus. Was there anyone more reviled, anyone more oppressed, anyone more innocent than Jesus Christ? And in that, he never reviled in return. We take things personally, we get all upset, we let it consume us, we are entrusting ourselves, not our Heavenly Father. Now, that's not to say that resistance to the faith shouldn't bother us. It's been difficult, it's been discouraging, it's been upsetting to see the things that we see, to have the conversations that we see. But God will not be mocked, His justice will prevail. Defending the faith involves responding with gentleness and respect to our opponents. If we do this well in context and in a compassionate way, we hope that our defense will not be lame, but it will be compelling. And so how do we defend the faith in a compelling way? And First Peter tells us that we have to live out our faith in such a way that people actually notice it, in such a way that people actually ask questions. We are not called to be bland, weak Christians that just blend into the culture all around us. We should stick out like a sore thumb, like a bright light shining against a dark world. There is a positive side to the world continuing to get darker and darker and darker. And that positive side is 
that our light shines brighter and brighter and brighter. If we, are, if we are seeking to be faithful to what God calls us to in here, we will stick out like a sore thumb against a culture that is growing darker. And think for a moment, do you get questions? Do you get questions? Do people ask you, why are you the way you are? What drives you? Why do you think like that? Why do you react like that? Why do you have that position on abortion? Why do you have that position on homosexuality? What is this? What is that? Do people ask you these things? Not saying, of course, that we have to sit back and wait for someone to ask us questions. Well, I'd really hope for someone to evangelize today, but nobody's asked me any questions. It doesn't work like that either, right? We need to be starting conversations, directing things towards spiritual topics. But when they do ask, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. Don't be caught unprepared to give a compelling defense. If someone asks you for the reason for the hope you have in Jesus, and you have a well-thought-out, logical, rational, solid defense for your faith, that church in and of itself is compelling. Because when they ask you the reason, and you're able to then respond with something that is cohesive and something that is biblical and something that is true, they're going to realize, wow, this guy's actually thought about this. It's not just a sheep that goes to church every week and checks the box and comes home. It's got to get past that. It's got to be, no, I actually believe this, and here's why. That's a compelling defense no matter what, just the fact that we have it thought out and we're ready to go. Have you ever thought about it? Go home, find a notebook, write in your notebook why you're a Christian, why you believe the things you do, why do you stand up for the things you do. Put it together, think about it. Pray through it. Be prepared. We have opponents, and they're looking to find Christians who have weak, shallow faith. And we see those Christians getting eaten alive every single day. Church, that's why we want to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We have to be ready for a mature, compelling defense of the faith. Now, just like I said last week, that doesn't mean that they're going to accept your reasoning. They still might think your reasoning is trash, but at least we have reasoning. And it's not us that is going to save anyone. It's Jesus. And we have to remember that. Many of the arguments that our opponents have uh, been strengthened by the lives of weak Christians. We literally put bullets in their gun. And, and it just causes us to shake our heads. We can't be like that. We don't have it all figured out. Okay, I want to, I want to always be like, we're right and everyone else is wrong. I don't, I don't want to be like that, right? But we have to be authentic. We have to be legit. Don't, don't give the other side. Don't arm the other side with our hypocrisy or our weakness or our immaturity. Be prepared. Our word here for reason in 1 Peter 3 is the famous Greek word logos. It's a thick Greek word. Recall it in John chapter 1 when, when he talks about Jesus himself, the, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same word there. Used in this context, it means our rationale for the faith. You should give that reason. You should give that Logos of, of what you believe, why you believe. It's, it's this all-encompassing idea. In other words, a worldview. And we've got to know why to see the world through a biblical worldview and be ready to defend it. That's compelling. 
And so I'll say this as the third point. Defending our faith means knowing the biblical worldview. Defending our faith means knowing the biblical worldview. This is why we do what we do at Highlands. This is why we preach through books of the Bible. This is why we have all of the things designed to make and mature us. It goes hand in hand with our our mission. Last week at this thing called Midweek that we have every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., shameless plug, and we're starting this new series called Problems with Christianity where we are looking at all the common objections to faith, and we had a great turnout this week, and I hope we have even more turnout next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. for midweek. We had lots of discussion. We talked about two purposes of apologetics. First one is evangelism. And we have to not move past that. We're called to go into all the world and make and mature disciples. Great Commission. Go. Teach them everything I've taught you. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're called to evangelize to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the first purpose of apologetics is evangelism. But the second purpose of apologetics is equipping the church to go and do the apologetics. We, we read from Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, watch this, to do what? To equip the church, equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Watch this, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or by human coming, cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is the head into Christ. Remember, this is the work of the church. We equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, when evangelism, we make disciples. And with equipping the church, we mature disciples. Why is apologetics important? Why do we have to know our faith? Why are we talking about this? Because it's central to what we do in making and maturing disciples. One of the questions I get a lot is, is how do I, you know, how do I plug in? How do I get involved? Which is a, a great question. I love that question. If you've ever asked that question, thank you. But I always feel like I have very, very simplistic response, which is um, just show up. Just come to the stuff. Just come to morning worship. Come to midweek. Get involved in a care group. Go to a Bible study. Meet people. Come to this thing called midweek every Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m., right? Come to all of... Just just start showing up. Make relationships, right? It, It sounds so simplistic, but that's why we do the things we do. Sometimes, church, it's frustrating because... I'll hear, I'm not really plugged in. Okay, well, how are you plugging in? Maybe you feel you're not plugged in because you're kind of not plugged in. Right? Plug in. We set these things up for a reason so that we grow in the faith. We're mature, we're ready. If you're a member and none of the existing care groups or Bible studies work for you, start one. Talk to the elders, talk to me. If you aren't ready to defend the faith, church, quite simply, get ready to defend the faith. 
We are equipping you to be ready. Take advantage of what we have to equip you to defend the faith. Know what the Bible says. Know what the Bible doesn't say. I'm continually shocked when I read some of the best-selling atheist authors, the big guns, the airmen's and the Dawkins and all those guys, and their arguments stink because they don't know the Bible. They base their arguments on misinterpretations of the Bible. And if you don't know what the Bible actually says, you're going to fall for it. So many people are walking around with false understandings of the truth of Scripture. I love Machen's simple quote that says, false ideas are the greatest obstacle to the reception of the gospel. Millions and millions of people are walking around with false ideas of Scripture and therefore they're objecting to false ideas or deconverting from a faith that they never actually had because it's not the truth. Church, do we know why abortion is against God's law? Do we know that he calls us to care for the widows, the orphans, the helpless? Do we know what God's word actually says about homosexuality? Do you know what your opponent is saying about those things? Do Do we seek to understand? Do we ask good questions? Do we define terms? But we have to know the biblical worldview in order to defend it. We have to. Our case will not be compelling unless we know the word of God. To give a compelling argument for the faith, we need to be armed and ready with the biblical worldview. And sadly, that is not the case today. In 2021, an American worldview inventory at Arizona Christian University revealed that even though almost 70% of Americans would identify as Christians, only 9% of them actually have an understanding of a biblical worldview of the big story of the Bible, about how it all fits together, about how I'm supposed to look at life through this worldview, 9%. It probably has to do with the massive problem of biblical illiteracy. If we go worldwide, of the 2 billion Christians worldwide who identify as Christian, less than 30% have read the whole Bible. So if we want to know the biblical worldview, step one, read the Bible. Read all the Bible. Read the whole Bible. How many professing Christians have read through the whole Bible? Step one to developing a biblical worldview is read the Bible, all of it. Suggestion, make that your devotional plan. The apps are fine and the Our Daily Bread or whatever else, right? That could be fine, but not unless you've read the whole Bible first. There's, there's a five-day reading plan that I absolutely love because it gives you two other days that, you know, life happens and stuff happens, right? Read the Bible. Start today. Read the entire Bible. See how all the pieces fit together. Read through it every year. Interact with it. Pray through it. Talk about it. Know it. Every year I get a new Bible because I'm going to write through the whole Bible. So every year I just get a new Bible in January and then it's cool. And we start to get my pen going. Yeah, I'm a nerd. Okay. And we just, we we read through the Bible and then I can make all fresh notes because many, many years ago, I found out that if I just used a Bible that I read last year, I'm just going to skip to all the points that I underlined and highlighted and all the notes I had. We can write in our Bibles. You guys know that, right? Get a Bible that you can write. If you want one that's nice, have one that's nice, maybe for Sundays or whatever, but but write in it. We have an embarrassing wealth of Bibles in this country. Know the Bible. Then grow from that. Because church, all all the Bible tells 
one story. Know what it is. Defending the faith involves knowing the biblical worldview. And church, do we know the big story of the Bible? Do we know that, that one overarching narrative that God has, has woven throughout his gospel? Do we know how to spot cheap imitations of it, like the prosperity gospel, or empty traditions with no, tr- no truth in them? Do we know our God, the one reflected in his word, the one true orthodox historical Christianity like we just recited together in the Nicene Creed? Do we know this God, majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, creator of the world and everything in it, his son Jesus sent on a redemptive rescue mission for us, us, the ones who rejected his plan, the ones who rejected his authority over us, Jesus, as we said, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made. Do we know that? Jesus came for our salvation, becoming one of us to represent us, yet still God in order to pay the price for sin that no one else could pay. Now, Jesus, having been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended back to heaven, now, right now, sitting, ruling, and reigning on his throne, working all things, all things, church, through the counsel of his will the glory of his grace, for growth in us as his children, empowering us, his church, those who by faith have understood the spiritual realities and submitted themselves once again in faith to their king to live, to grow, to become more like him, to defend the faith. Church, we will encounter persecution for our faith. Defending the faith involves persecution for the faith. And church, do we have compassion for those that we disagree with, that those who disagree with us? Defending the faith involves responding with gentleness and compassion and respect. Church, do we know the biblical worldview? Do we know what is true and what is not true according to God's word? So much of what we hear again from those who might disagree with us is just straight up not true. It's not what the Bible says. Can we defend the faith in a compelling way? Gently showing the truth of the Bible in a cohesive yet logical way. And all of this, why? Ultimately for the glory of God, not in winning an argument, but in winning souls for Jesus Christ. Think about that, church. Every day people are dying and going to hell. And we have the gospel. We need to be able to defend the faith to obey the mission that Jesus has given his church, making and maturing disciples, evangelizing and equipping his church. Let us indeed always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in us. Why? Because we of all people know the truth because we have set it apart in our hearts. Father, we thank you for this word, we thank you for this time that we could spend focusing on a defense of the faith, Lord. And in this environment, in this culture that is growing increasingly hostile to you, to the Bible, to your law, to us, to the church, we pray that you would equip us through your spirit to defend the faith in a contextualized, compassionate, and compelling way. And Lord, if there are those here this morning that have not actually set you apart as holy, in their hearts, 
We pray that you would use all things in your disposal to open eyes, convict hearts, to show the truth of the spiritual reality at work and the true hope that can be in them through Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.